Hi, this is me. I'm the Marketing and Communications Specialist at CARE. I'm Melissa. I'm one of the Violence Prevention Coordinators at CARE, and you are listening to The Narrative Project. Hello, and welcome back to The Narrative Project. Today, we will be continuing our conversation on the socialization of gender with our lovely guests. Let's have everyone quickly reintroduce themselves with their names, pronouns, where they're calling in from today, and a description of themselves. So my name is Hazal, my pronouns are she. I am an intern at the UCI care office working in outreach and prevention education, calling in from Irvine, California. Um, a short description of myself is that I have medium length black curled hair. Um, I'm wearing a mint top with a sage cardigan and I am using a UCI care background with the little anteater in the corner and UCI care contact information in the other corner. Hi everyone, my name is Mika, I use she, they pronouns. I'm the marketing communications admin intern here at the UCI care office. I'm currently calling in from the Bay Area and the little description of my background is that, and myself, is that I have long black hair, I'm wearing a white sweater and I have the same background as Hazal with a little anteater in the corner and the UCI care information up above. Hi everyone, I'm Daisy, I use she, they pronouns. I am a UCI alum where I graduated with a gender and sexuality studies minor, and I also used to work at the LGBT Resource Center. I'm calling from my home in LA, and I have short curly hair, wearing clear glasses, and I have a green shirt on with a white Taylor Swift cardigan on. Hi, my name is Sue. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a UCI undergrad right now. I'm calling from Irvine today. And a little description about myself is I'm holding an anteater voice right now. And I'm I having a long bla uh, black dark here, wearing glasses as well. Thank you all. And again, to preface our discussion, we will be conversing on sensitive topics, going in depth on socialization of gender. So for our first question today is, how does society view femininity, masculinity, and androgyny? What falls into all of these categories? We have had in our society like a pretty narrow view of both of them so femininity has come to encapsulate everything that you think a woman should do or like be or act or say so it's a lot of sensitivity um, motherliness and like caring and all of these things and then masculinity um, has been deemed the opposite of that and what we tend to see things labeled as masculine or things that men should do, be, say, etc. And it's strength, aggressiveness. I don't know, there's so many things that that can fit into. So I feel like even when we're talking about gender fluidity or what have you, like we still have that kind of concept of what femininity is and what masculinity is, because that's kind of how it's been labeled for so long. Androgyny on the other hand. So someone in my life brought up androgyny and like people who were assigned female at birth, how they could, if they're quote unquote presenting androgynously, usually what that looks like is like presenting masculinely. And then the opposite, like if someone was assigned male at birth and they're being deemed androgynous, they could just be dressing femininely. So then what is androgyny? Because then in that sense, we're still labeling androgyny or seeing androgyny as the opposite of what is expected of that person. But you don't want to label it as feminine or as masculine because then that's like too close to transness. Like, oh no, 
we don't want to do that. We don't want to label them as something like that. So I don't know. It's I, androgyny is like this very um, interesting middle, I guess, a gray area. So that kind of go back to what I was talking about the, the school policies was should have more PE classes so that they, they will become like more mass and then girls should have some like sewing classes that goes back to the 19th century. And one thing is that I that reminds me is that um, one particular thing is that all my male friends hate being called cute. I, I don't know why. It's like because like when sometimes they do something, I just say, oh, that's cute. And it was like, no, that's not manly. Like just stop, just stop calling calling me that. I was like, oh, but that, that's the truth though. It's like they, they really want to get rid of that identity. Like they, they want to try to avoid every circumstance that they will be connected with them. And what falls into both category, I would say it's like Mm, the perfect human being should have a little bit of both sides. You can be like all fam, like yeah, all fam or all masculinity. That's just that's just go to another extreme. Yeah, and I myself trying to like be a little bit of both. Yeah, I'm actually taking a class called social relationships right now with um, Dr. Singer, and we were talking about masculine and feminine traits, and they found through research that having a mix of both, which is considered androgynous. If you're high on all of the traits, that's the best, at least in terms of relationships, because our whole class is about relationships. In relationships, that's the ideal partner, would be someone who's high in both masculine and feminine traits. So they're both masculine being problem solving, like stereotypically masculine things versus femininity is like caring, things like that. That's how they're assigned. I'm not like saying this, <laughs> that's what the research calls them, but um, how they stereotypically assign that. So I think it's really interesting just going off of Sue's point. Yeah, what y'all brought up kind of brings us into the next point is how have these understandings changed over time? How are they different now than say 30, 40 years ago? I think I've started to see a trend of allowing people to perform masculinity or perform fem femininity without them necessarily getting backlash. Obviously it's still happening, but slowly we're starting to praise men for being a little bit more sensitive and caring and stuff, or shame them for not <laughs> being sensitive or caring. It, I feel like it's, it's kind of shifting. Um, and I don't know if that's because of the bubble that I've created my um, myself within like what I choose to see on social media. But like, like for example, on TikTok, I see like people's like, couple videos or whatever and there's definite praise that's starting to go towards doing things that you aren't necessarily expected to do maybe the bar is set low but also eh, at least there's something happening there's like some movement towards encouraging us to be in that androgyny maybe because just because like the people around me we both grows or or that's like also like part of society that change for me, before when there's some guys that hang out with girls, you, you can only see like one or two like they really like hanging out with girls and they'll actually be isolated by other dudes they're calling me like girly or pussy. But now I, I really see that. I was like never after I get into high school and now college. And another thing I feel like that change is that one thing that also trying to educate my peer and also, my parent is that before about the homo normativity, and they will assign 
people, um, especially gay and lesbian people, they will assign their role that you're the masculine one, you're the feminine one. That's also like part, part of the things my parents always tell me, like they'll ask me, oh, let, let's guess like who, who is who? It's like, oh, that's kind of offensive. And I'll try to tell them that you sh we shouldn't pull the stereotype straight people, uh, straight couples, uh, like the four format into like LGBTQ group. And that's because that's not like applicable. That's also the thing I feel that changed because I, I got asked a lot about this question before and now people's trying to accept that you're using like, it's not always the, that's not always about like heterosexual people. Uh -huh. And we have like a different way of uh, getting things wrong. Totally remember moments of like my family doing the exact same thing with queer couples and trying to like assign them their label of like, oh, that's a man in the relationship, that's a girl in the relationship. And I remember like that happening with like lesbian couples. But then I got, when I was like 15, I started hanging out a lot more with one of my cousins who's queer, who was in a relationship and her and her partner, both of them, they were both very like butch lesbians and like me as a 15 year old was kind of like wait a minute they're they both seem like the man in the relationship everything that like my parents had said is like out the door and that's kind of where I started to question like, yeah I think they were wrong about that I think that that's not how it works <laughs> yeah going back a little to what y'all were talking about um and how ideas of masculinity are kind of changing now and like it's more people look at men who present a little more femme or like with more feminine traits as, wow, they're cooler per se. For example, Harry Styles, he's been like praised for being against uh, male social norms and posing in a dress on Vogue's cover. But then it brings up this one sociology theory that came up in one of my classes that was talking about hybrid masculinity, which is the understanding that some men can adopt certain performative and like identity elements of other minority groups and incorporate it into their own presentation. And it's just really interesting in how it also perpetrates different forms of power balances, because even though that they are playing into those marginalized pre presentations, they aren't those marginalized groups. So they're still Harry Styles. He's still a white man and he's still using those aspects, races platform a little. So it's really interesting seeing those and like seeing how people can use those in certain ways. That's super interesting. I kind of want to jump back to the heteronormativity point um, as well, because I've definitely seen this in my relationship because my partner is much, well, she alternates kind of between how she presents more masculine, more feminine, but generally she presents more masculine and can just be feminine when she's feeling like it. But generally, like if people looked at our relationship, they would think, oh, she's the man in the relationship and I'm the woman in the relationship, which like, okay, it does not make sense. But in terms of her characteristics, she's also very caring and kind, has just been socialized as a caring person, but also has like those like masculine dressing, like masculine presenting type of, I guess, vibe. <laughs> That's the only word I can think of to her. So it's, it's definitely an issue trying to put these structures onto non heterosexual relationships, queer relationships, as well kind of going into what 
Mika said, I'm not fully within that theory. It's kind of just having people pushing something onto a marginalized group and using it to further their understanding, which is not quite, I understand that's not quite what you said, but kind of just in the similar vein. All right, so that kind of ties into our next question, which is how have other aspects of your identity affected your gender identity? The first thing that came to mind when I read this was something that I've talked to other people about and Hazal also especially we've talked about this but so I identify as queer and that affected my gender identity when I like first came out to myself because I had this moment of oh my gosh well even before then before I came out to myself I was like I can't be queer I'm not butch enough because that's what I thought your gender expression had to be very butch very mask in order to be a lesbian then once I did come out to myself I realized wait if I'm still wearing dresses, that means I should probably change up my look and wear more button downs or dress more mask or whatever. And that started to affect the way that I thought of my gender or presented and stuff. Just because I, ironically, I was doing, I feel like I was doing this for like multiple reasons. One, because that was kind of the way that I was I thought I was expected to be, like if I was gonna be this, then I had to be that. And then secondly, I think I was looking for validity of other queer people. Like I wanted them to validate my queerness in like, if they were to see me, then I would want them to acknowledge me as a queer person. And for some reason, I thought that I, well, it kind of does happen, but um, not as much as I thought it would happen, but I feel like people are more quick to see you as like a quote valid lesbian if you're not a super hyper feminine lesbian if that makes sense so some people do that others are the opposite something about the validity of my queerness affected the way that i was choosing to express my own gender i can definitely relate to that because when i initially came out i definitely wore a lot more button downs i cut my hair really short it was like here um and i felt like if i didn't dress masculine people would not think that i was queer and not like accept me as that and now obviously that's changed i don't really care um as much what other people think and i also had an interesting conversation with one of my friends um and they identify as non-binary and we were kind of talking about like queerness and gender identity and they were saying how when they first started kind of dressing more androgynous or cutting their hair and things like that um that went towards the more quote-unquote masculine side of things um what they were worried about was being perceived as like quote-unquote butch which like isn't a negative thing but they weren't comfortable with being perceived that way and presenting that way um, so I thought that was a really interesting way of thinking about how sexuality can also affect gender and the stereotypes within sexuality can affect gender, how one presents and how one feels about they present. Yeah, I definitely related to that because now I dress really feminine and I always get the call when, when I tell others that I'm bisexual they're just like no you're straight because you're like dressing so feminine is like definitely gonna attract straight person i was like uh but that's the way i wanted to be dressed i'm not trying to present anything it just i embrace my own identity and how i dress won't change my inner identity that's also the things i feel like if you want to be 
queer or like in a sexual minority group, you have to dress a particular way as your entrance ticket. I was like, things shouldn't work like that. It shouldn't be like another type of norm that you're gonna accept in order to enter that group. It should all about more about the inside instead of how you how to dress and how to perform yourself. Even about like the length of your hair shouldn't like decide your sexuality. That's just nonsense. <laughs> Yes, Zee, I totally relate to that. When I first came out, I was, even though I dress like super feminist, will people perceive, will people understand that this is me, this is who I am? Or will they say, no, you can't be that, that's impossible, look at you. So it's such a weird concept, other people defining who you are and because of how you present yourself, it's just so twisted. I also thought of this question and how I grew up in a very super Catholic environment. Since then, I've moved away from that faith and I've accepted what has happened with it. And it's just growing up in that sort of environment really shaped how I understood gender and how I walked into that because there were very strong roles placed in that environment, especially with masculinity and especially with femininity, how we should be presenting, how we should show ourselves to the rest of society. And I thought it was really interesting how since that time, since my youth, I've grown so much and I've learned so many different aspects of life and just how exposing myself to different aspects of the world has changed my my own understanding of what gender is. I also grew up Catholic, but for me, it was a more cultural aspect than a religious per se. My parents weren't heavily into like going to church on Sundays and so on, but um, my extended family was. So when I would hang out with them, I still to this day kind of feel a little bit of um, their pressures from their own socialization of Catholicism. And I remember my grandma was also very big on that, of expecting you to be married in the church with a man and a lot of other different things. But unrelated to Catholicism, in um, culturally something that affected my gender identity slash expression was my ear piercings. That was something that I was socialized into and I didn't realize that it, it affected my gender identity until now I've become socially aware and conscious of that. But I swear, I think my ears got pierced before my belly button fell off. It was intense <laughs> for some reason. My aunts and family, like it's a tradition, I guess. So it's just something that gets placed on me unconsensually and like other children around the world that I guess that part of my culture affected my gender identity without me even knowing. So interesting to think about as well as something like so small that affects how you view yourself and how you feel others view you. So we're kind of going to change gears a little bit. Our next question is how are gender specific spaces created? An example of a gender specific space would be like a space for survivors a lot of times tends to gear towards women and kind of excludes others, not intentionally, but just like by nature of the group. And there's obviously other gender specific spaces as well. And also the secondary question to that is how can we make these spaces more inclusive and more welcoming and open to all gender identities? I hadn't even considered the pickle that you're placed in with wanting to create, whether it's like trauma-based spaces, but then if the trauma happened because of someone of a specific gender did that, you can't really have a uniting group about that trauma. That's kind of difficult. I can see how that would be difficult. I guess I hadn't considered that yet. Because the only moments that like I've had to help create gender specific spaces was at the UCI LGBTRC. That wasn't necessarily about um, surviving something or mostly like wanting, well, not 
mostly, but it was a lot of bonding and reflection about your experiences. And that could include oppression as well. The way that we kind of went about it was making sure that people who came into the center understood that there is a need for closed spaces. So technically everyone is allowed in because we can't stop you. One, we're a public university's like department, so we can't like discriminate. But then I feel like we kind of get the sense of respect and understanding that people need certain groups to be closed in order to really create trust and bond and vulnerability. And so I think for us, it what it took was trusting that others will understand the need for the spaces. And luckily for us, it's not too difficult because in our space, everyone kind of needs that. Everyone kind of gravitates towards wanting a safe space and a closed space. So they respect other spaces. In the nature of us being an LGBT center, it came fairly easily to create closed gender inclusive spaces. But outside of that bubble, hard. (laughs) Must be very hard. (laughs) So I can't really think of a way to let it be more inclusive, probably creating community a rule that like everyone acknowledge, but yeah, just as like what Daisy mentioned, is hard for people to like open up if they feel like they're not in a closed space. And yeah, it's like taking spouse abuse survivor as an example. Two third of them, like over two thirds of them, is female, and I feel like it's kind of hard for them to open up if they're if they feels like there's like someone that's seeing the opposite gender yeah i'm gonna call that and in the group it's kind of hard for them to open up sometime and yeah community group might help but now it's still kind of difficult until we reach like a common sense that we're gonna be inclusive and um, respecting each other yeah there's like a long way to go (laughs) yeah um i kind of want to add looking at the other perspective not just from female survivors' perspectives, but also for male survivors to try to enter spaces for survivors, for example. How do you think they would feel going into that kind of a space? Honestly, I, if I put myself in their shoes, I would probably feel a little bit uncomfortable. Just a tad, because I obviously can't get into that headspace because I've never experienced it myself, but it, it would seem slightly difficult if you want to talk about someone who, like let's say they're uh, a cis heterosexual male who was abused by someone who was a woman and like they went into a space wanting to talk about that, but literally everyone in the room is a woman or um, presents of such or something. I can see how like that can be a little bit uncomfortable. And it's, it's very hard because then at the same time, like you don't, like it seems like the solution would be like make very super, super niche groups but then how how much you can't really gauge how helpful that will be either because then what if it's like it's such a niche group that like no one else could be there to support them because no one else has that like very specific experience and so on I don't know I, I think dang, I don't know it feels like community agreements is something that is so easy to be like well if everyone just agrees to it then like we can make sure that this is a safe space i've had moments where like sure enough we all agree to them but like there's always someone not always but there'll be times when there's someone who jumps in and invalidates someone else's experiences or feelings and you have to pull them out and be like hey what you did was not necessarily the best thing that you could have said in the moment and so 
it's kind of hard because then at that point, like they've already done the harm. Like they've already said something that's hurt someone else's feelings. And the, you can almost only hope that like it won't happen again by that same person. And it also just takes talking to the person who was affected. But it's a very tricky thing. Yeah, it also feels like it's hard and it might make both sides a little bit uncomfortable. And another thing is that if we agree to a community agreement, but you still feel like uncomfortable and the most things people might do is just choose silence and just not open up because that they're afraid if they say anything it will be harmful or like hurting another person's feeling but that's not really how the conversation should go it's like if everyone just like silence that's that's not the like the intention for a close community yeah thank you both for sharing so kind of a follow-up that goes a different way rather than gender specific spaces what are some ways that we interact with non-gendered spaces through the lens of our gender identities personally with caution <laughs> uh, most of the time it's with caution because i feel like if if something is a non-gendered space for the most part that that tends to be uh hyper-gendered space, if that makes sense, where it's like people just assume you're cis or is expect you to like take on the role of being cisgendered. So like what could be, what could feel non-gendered to cis people to me feels gendered. So I have to go in there with caution because through my own gender identity, that's what it makes me be a little bit more cautious of showing my mask side to others. That's, I guess that's kind of how I tend to interact with non-gendered spaces is kind of through a cautious way, which I would hope to not have to, but even then, I guess my anxiety gets the best of me. I would choose to avoid this gender-specific question or discussion in a non-gender space because that's because if you talk about it, that's the bit like that's the best way to start the fight. People just like start uh, starting to like take their own side and start arguing. And I personally don't feel like it's beneficial for people that are holding like a totally opposite opinion to arguing about anything. Because both of them are just gonna be talking and no one is listening. Yeah, I'll just avoid it. And this side, I will make sure that I'm in a space that there's someone that will listen instead of trying to trying to find out which line they will use to fight back. <laughs> That's so interesting, kind of how how you all thought of that question. I've never thought about it as a non-gendered space being actually hyperpolarized, because that is the norm of our society, is a hyperpolarized, gendered society. And when you're in a non-gendered space, or I guess in that case, it's a space that doesn't pay attention to gender as a factor. It creates that, it just replicates what's within society and pushes it on you as an individual. Yeah, what you all brought up was really interesting and kind of going forward with that same kind of topic in mind, more so with what the UCI Care Office is offering for survivors and their people in providing resources is how has society's perception of gender affected how individuals come forward with their stories and seek out resources? I think the biggest thing that comes to mind immediately is the stigma of like of for like how do I explain this the misogyny I guess really affects everyone because 
if you are um if you were assigned female at birth and like something happens then like the, there's a stigma and like you may want to you may feel more silenced because you don't want to talk about it because then you will be um you can be victim blamed for what happened and then on the other hand if like you were assigned male at birth and like something happens to you then you there because of misogyny then like there's a sense of like oh you you should have enjoyed that or you weren't manly enough or strong enough to stop it or whatever for all these like very toxic um very um gross ways to look at things that kind of affect people's willingness to seek out resources and it's really sad how misogyny affects everyone and i feel like people tend to think that misogyny really only affects women but it affects men in the in like a similar way because they're no longer quote unquote allowed to be victims or not allowed to um be sensitive or like to act in certain ways which is just as harmful to like their own psyche and their own like gender expression and stuff and like they're back to that ability to seek out resources and support i think it's important to find a safe space so personally i have like a lot of friends that come forward to me and tell them like their story and i feel like that that's deep like and they say i never told anyone about it but i feel like you're the you're like a safe person to talk to like you won't just tell my story out to anybody else and i feel like there's a need for safe space that we can all talk about the like story we went through that's probably one thing that stop people from seeking out resource because seeking out resource means you have to expose yourself you have some level of self-exposure and it self-exposed have risk that's the part that some people are not willing to take because they're afraid that if i say that out loud and i didn't get the resource i needed i'll just be in a hurt and there's maybe like rumor going on and that will come back and hurt their personal life that's what i'm thinking so i think a safe space to talk about things is really really important okay um thank you all for coming out here and sharing your thoughts and experiences i really appreciate the vulnerability and willingness you had to create the space and converse in the space with us on that note this marks the end of our discussion here but to everyone listening this is just the start so please do carry on the conversation at home and among friends for more discussions on similar topics and exploring lived experiences join us back here on the narrative project podcast thanks for tuning into the narrative project podcast we hope you all enjoyed the dialogue we had today. Please remember, should you need support from the CARE office, please call us at 949-824-7273 or email us at care at uci.edu. Our services are available to UCI students, staff, and faculty members Monday through Friday, 8 a.m., 5 p.m. PST. The UCI Counseling Center is available at 949-824-6457 and offers 24-hour access to counselors by phone. And for Waymaker's 24-hour hotline, they can be contacted at 949-831-9110 in South Orange County or 714-957-2737 for North Orange County. They can provide resources and referrals for survivors of sexual assault. Human Auctions 24-hour hotline is available at 
1-800-273-3594 and provides resources, safety, and support for individuals experiencing relationship abuse. For those outside of Orange County, the National Sexual Assault Hotline can be reached at 1-800-656-4673 or through online chat at RAIN.org, that's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G, for resources and referrals for survivors of sexual assault. And the National Domestic Violence Hotline can be reached at 1-800-799-7233 or through online chat at thehotline.org. That's T-H-E-H-O-T-L-I-N-E dot O-R-G for resources and referrals for survivors of individuals experiencing relationship abuse. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please be sure to share it with someone you know and join us for our next conversation. Bye for now.